The black-hulled Calypso frigate had caused a stir of interest from the moment she sailed up the muddy medway on the first of the flood. Her ship's company racing round the deck, working sheets, tacks and braces as she tacked and then tacked again the moment she had way on. The medway narrows up as it nears the towns past the ruins of Upna Castle, battered a century and a half earlier by the Dutchman de Reuter, and has some nasty bends with mud flats a few inches below the water to trap the unwary. Once she had moored off Chatham Dockyard, the ship and her men came under the authority of the commissioner, and was soon the target of all his minions. Ramage had managed to get a copy of a recent royal calendar to see the names of the men who would be responsible for the Calypso's refit, and whom Aitkin, the first lieutenant, would spend several weeks cajoling, persuading, and threatening to get work done properly and reasonably promptly. The first name in the calendar under Chatham Yard was the commissioner resident, listed as F. J. Wedge, Esquire, 800 pounds, more for paper and firing, 12 pounds. Ramage conceded that the commissioner probably earned his 800 pounds a year pay, and probably quadrupled it from bribes and all the corrupt activities a man in his position could indulge in. The Navy Board was showing their usual parsimony in allowing only twelve pounds a year to pay for stationery and fuel for the fires or stoves. Still, there must be plenty of old wood lying around. The master shipwright, Martin's father, was paid two hundred pounds a year, the same as the master rope maker, master boat builder, master mast maker, master sail maker, master smith, master carpenter, master joiner, and master bricklayer. The bosun of the dockyard received only eighty pounds, but the storekeeper received two hundred pounds and was probably, because of the opportunity for fraud, the wealthiest of the dockyard employees. Most of them had come on board as the frigate was moored up, not because a thirty-six-gun French frigate captured and brought into the king's service was an unusual sight, but because the exploits of the Calypso and her captain had been mentioned in enough gazettes to make them both famous. It would not mean any favourable treatment for the ship, because dockyard officials were, by nature, close-fisted men, issuing paint, rope, canvas and the like, as though they paid for it themselves. There was the story of one eccentric and aristocratic captain who, receiving the Navy Board's issue of paint for his ship, wrote to their lordships and asked which side of the ship he should paint. Their lordships were not amused and the captain ended up doing what most captains did, paying out of his own pocket for the extra paint needed. Ramage had stayed on board for a week as the Calypso swung on the buoy with wind and tide, until their lordships answered his request for leave. No officer was allowed to sleep out of his ship without written permission, and that included admirals. Ramage had been given a month's leave, and the ship was left in command of James Aitkin. The Scotsman had no wish to go up to Perth on leave. Ramage discovered for the first time that Aitkin's mother, the widow of a navy master, had recently died. And he obviously trusted no one else to make sure the refit was done properly. Ramage knew that, however keen and eagle-eyed Aitkin was, the man who really mattered was Southwick, the master. A man old enough to be the father and almost the grandfather of both his captain and first lieutenant. Leave for the men, 
all of whom had been away from Britain for at least a couple of years, was always a problem for any captain. Usually half the men had in the first place been seized by press gangs, and if the ship was an unhappy one because of the captain or her officers, giving the men leave would result in a number of them deserting, never returning to the ship and forfeiting a year or more of the pay due to them.